Hi, this is Justin Wiggins, author of Surprise by Myth, and you are listening to Pints with Jack. What do we see and think and feel when we look up at the night sky? Does it inspire awe and wonder and joy, or fear and abhorrence, a sense of belonging or a sense of meaninglessness? If we see the cosmos as we ought, then we will see a place teeming with life and light and love, all things moving because of the love of the great mover. All things are joined together in the great dance, praising their creator and serving him by doing what they were created to do. This is Pints with Jack, season six, episode 17, Deeper Heaven, After Hours with Christiana Hale. Welcome, everyone, here on Pints with Jack. We're working our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. And today, we have an after-hours interview. But first, the quotation I chose, and it comes from the book Deeper Heaven, who is going to be the guest of today. And I chose this after uh, reading the book because it really reminded me of, and this seems so far back now because this is from season one, but Mere Christianity. And in Mere Christianity, Lewis describes the Trinity as this pulsating dance. And that language and that quote just really reminded me of that. Like we we are called to participate in something far greater than ourselves. And not only called, invited. It's an invitation. It's a gift. And so I really love that language. It stuck out to me. And so in today's episode, we're going to learn about this great dance of the cosmos in the Ransom Trilogy with our guest. And our guest, Christiana Hale, is a writer and teacher based in Moscow, Idaho. She teaches Latin and English in junior high at a classical Christian school, which seeks to train students with this, with the kind of education that produces such minds like Tolkien and Lewis. We love to hear it. She writes nonfiction, fiction, and poetry. Maybe she can convert me more to poetry. Our, uh, the, the co-hosts have been trying to for quite some time. And in January 2021, she published her first book, Deeper Heaven, A Reader's Guide to C.S. Lewis's Ransom Trilogy. Welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for uh, this conversation because I, I had read the Space tri- or the Ransom Trilogy. You got to be careful with that. <laughs> when I was in college and I enjoyed it, but I did not understand the profoundness of what's really in it. And when I went through your book, well, first, it was great that I did this before we started recording a lot of the season because it allowed me to be a lot more intelligent as we're talking about this. Usually, I'm the co-host that knows the least relative to David and Andrew. And so it was it was a privilege to read this, and uh, it was incredibly enlightening. So I am very excited to uh, to be able to chat about this with you and share a little bit of it. We don't want to give too much away. We want the listeners to go buy the book and to read it and get uh, the depth of it, but we'll we'll tease them a little bit here. But yes, it's good to have you on. And you're from Moscow, Idaho. So, the, so what I what I love about when I saw that that name was um, I felt like a kindred spirit because I'm from Holland, Michigan, like a town <laughs> where it's like okay, this sounds like another place. Yeah. And my my college roommate was from uh, Poland, Ohio. <laughs> That's funny. And so every time I see, yeah, every time I see a name like that, I'm like, ah, oh, I can relate. Yeah. I was like, oh, you're from Holland. Sometimes I'll, that's, I don't know if you've done this before. People say, where are you from? I go Holland. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just, I'll leave the Michigan out for a little bit. Yeah. Oh, it sounds so exotic, right? 
<laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Little do they know it's a small town with less than 50,000 people. Yes, exactly. Is Moscow similar, a uh, small town? Yeah, it's, a, it's about, I think we're at about 23,000 people. So pretty small town. It's very rural. It's surrounded by farm, a lot of farmland. And uh, I moved here for college, let's see, 11, over 11 years ago now. So, um, so it's been a little while and I just, I fell in love with it though. I I grew up not far from here. It's about, about a hundred miles North or so. And so I'm, so it's not too far away from where I grew up. And so it didn't feel too foreign, but but it's, it is foreign to grow up in such a, in, in, to be in such a small town. Yes. There's definitely unique, <laughs> unique challenges and blessings that come with, with being in a small town like this. But it's a small college town too, which really ah. gives it an interesting, interesting feel to it. There's a, the University of Idaho is based here. And then just across the border in Washington is the uh, Washington State University. So there's two universities pretty close uh, together, but it's still a very small town. So that gives it a very, I don't know, an, an interesting vibe going on here. I, I remember the first time I visited Oxford, actually, I stepped off the train and I was like, hey, this feels very familiar to me, actually, because that college town <laughs> sort of feel. You have no idea. I was about to, and then I didn't want to cut you off, be like, this sounds, because I spent a year studying at Oxford. And so I was like, this sounds a lot like yeah. Oxford. <laughs> so why would you start saying that? It, it's, it's true, though. It really did. It actually, when I visited, I was like, there, there is something about college towns and university wow. towns that just, there's, there's, a, it's, there's a vibrant scholastic and intellectual life, but it's still small enough that I can't really go walk downtown and not see someone I know. Uh, and I've been here long enough and, yes. and with my church community and work community and school community, I just, I know a lot of people. And so it's, it's still that kind of feel like, Oh, I, I know you and you can't go to a coffee shop without running into someone, you know, and chatting with them. And so it's, it's really, I really do enjoy it. It's a, a nice mix of con- constant movement because there's always students coming through and yep. things happening um, in, in conjunction with the, the small kind of coziness factor of it being being a tiny town. I love that. Well, let me ask you this. What's the the one thing you might miss about a big town? Oh, pro- probably things like more restaurant options <laughs> and and mm-hmm. things more little more things to do, right? Cuz there is yes. a point at which you say, well, We've been to the rest, that restaurant five times this month. <laughs> Where else is there to go? Well, can't you have to drive a couple hours to get somewhere else? So, so that, you know, there is a yes. limitation on just how how many things there are to do, or things like I love when I visit big cities. I love going to museums or or things like that where there because we just don't ah. unless you want to go to the Native American Nez Perce Appaloosa Museum. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> yeah, it's a very very small. Um, sure, it's great, yes. but you know, it's it's a little bit more limited in that that respect. That is a good point because I so in between going from San Diego to Michigan, I spent San Diego alone is decent size, but then I went to New York for a year, about a year, year and a half. And you're right, you can just kind of wake up on a Saturday and go, where do I want to go? And there's endless new things from big museums to small museums to some sort of event or show or concert. Uh, there's always something. But I will say, living there, I was like, this is really fun to travel to, but I'm also kind of getting sick of all of the entertainment. Yeah. Like, I, I, I love nature. I love the outdoors. I, I, I can never get bored of an infinite amount of yes. hikes, but I can get bored of an infinite amount of 
dinners and stuff. That's <laughs> just after a while. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We know we have really good hiking here too. It's um, outdoors. It's just beautiful. So I mm. never, yeah, I never get tired of that. I definitely, if, if I choose much prefer living in a small, small town with lots of nature and, and hiking areas. Uh, I like visiting, visiting big cities. It's exactly the way to go. Yeah. It's good to get to experience that, but small doses. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, let's move to the toast. But first, are you drinking anything? I am. I am drinking Earl Grey tea. <laughs> Very fitting tea. We're going to talk about Lewis. Well, I had to pour a small little glass of scotch, my favorite scotch, Macallan 12, nice. uh, in the Pints with Jack Glen Caring glass. And for the toast, we will be toasting the Patreon supporter, Jake L. And so Jake, as we talk about the heavens and the the incredible gift they are and the wonder and all we would pray that in your spiritual journey you would continue to have your eyes open to the mystery and the wonder of the heavens cheers cheers all right what we all came here for to dive into the interview for you not not moscow idaho or myself we're going to talk about you so how did you first fall in love i always love to hear People who wrote books on Lewis, there's always a time when you encounter him first and you realize what an impact he has in your life. When was that? So it's, I kind of see it as two, almost two encounters really, because I grew up with my mother reading bedtime stories to us. I mean, I just, mm -hmm. some of my earliest memories are her sitting on the floor between my bed and my sister's bed and reading to us before we, before we went to sleep. And so my first first encounter with Lewis would be the Chronicles of Narnia and and her reading those to us uh, before before bed. So it was it was really good. But you know, it's one of those things where I just, I grew up from really young age listening to the Narnia stories, and as I think a lot of people do, that being the first experience with Lewis, you kind of just think of him as a children's book author. You know, that's he's kind of uh, it's hard to separate C.S. Lewis from Narnia if that's the first time you experience him. So I remember um, going into, I think it was sometime in high school, maybe my junior or senior year of high school, realizing that he wrote far more than just Narnia. And in <laughs> fact, you know, that wasn't even his day job, right? That wasn't his his focus. And so I think I read some of his apologetic works, maybe Meercraft Christianity. And I do remember reading Till We Have Faces in high school and being completely lost really good <laughs> i did enjoy it but i didn't really know why i was like there's things i like about this but i don't i don't understand it and i didn't really have a classical education growing up i didn't read a lot of the books that lewis himself read it wasn't really till late high school that i that my my parents kind of discovered um, classical education and i was homeschooled all mm -hmm. the way uh, k through 12 so i kind of started wading in and it wasn't really till college that i went full steam into the the classical world. Um, and so college was actually when I first read the space trilogy or the ransom trilogy. Ah. I tried to read it as a high school student and I gave up. Uh, so I always, I always like telling that story because like, see you, you, I know it's hard. And if you gave up, <laughs> there's still hope. <laughs> there's still yes. hope for you. Uh, so I think I thought it was going to be just like Narnia for older people, like it's the next mm -hmm. level up from Narnia. And if you go into it with that mindset, you might be disappointed because it, it is very different in a lot of ways from, from Narnia. So I remember having a little bit of a hard time mm -hmm. getting into it. And I think I gave up a few, couple chapters in 
And looking back, I was like, why did you give up there? You should have kept going and pushed through. But uh, so it wasn't until college that I had to read it for a class. And I'm really, obviously, very grateful that I did. And I was forced, if you will, <laughs> to read it because <laughs> it really did in so many ways change, I say change my life and not be dramatic about it. Because if I had, I mean, if I hadn't read it, I wouldn't be sitting where I am today. So it really, and I think it was the class I was taking as well. There was a lot of, um, I learned a lot about what Lewis was trying to do in that trilogy. And so I just fell in love with that. It just fascinated me, uh, the medieval cosmology and all those elements mm -hmm. I thought were just so interesting and, and fascinating. So the rest, as they say, is history. I kind of just kept going down that uh, that rabbit hole and chasing different threads and research. And it it led to me writing my undergrad thesis on the Ransom Trilogy and kind of more closely tied with Dante. And You really dove into it right away. Oh, yeah, I, I did. <laughs> undergrad thesis, graduate thesis. <laughs> I did. I did all of it on Lewis and the, the Ransom Trilogy. So I probably should have like emailed you for... Um, I found some bios online when I put the bio together. I didn't know you did your undergraduate thesis, your graduate thesis, all that stuff. That's fantastic. Yeah. So the the graduate thesis really was a, basically a rough draft of of Deeper Heaven, what what came to oh. be Deeper Heaven. The undergraduate thesis, some of it ended up in the book, but some of it hasn't seen the light of day yet. It's it was a little more narrow. It was uh, focusing mm -hmm. on how parallels between the Ransom Trilogy and Dante's Divine Comedy. So there's some of those elements. I talk a lot about Dante in Deeper Heaven, but it was a little yeah. bit more tightly focused on, on Dante and specific parallels between the trilogy and the Divine Comedy and using that to kind of uh, present an argument towards what Lewis was trying to accomplish in his use of the medieval cosmology in the trilogy. So a lot of those elements worked their way into the book. Um, it was kind of a launching off pad for that bigger project. I have to imagine, I'm speaking for listeners right now, but you're already teasing them in a good sense, like hearing this connection between Dante, medieval cosmology, the Ransom Trilogy. And that, honestly, that's the part that got me because um, the two interviews I've done here in the beginning are with you and uh, Dr. Glyer uh, did also a book that I had read in preparation for this season. And I, I honestly, when I read this, I did not understand the medieval cosmology part when I read the Ransom Trilogy, not your book, mm -hmm. um, the Dante stuff. And it's just, then when I reread it for in preparation for the season, the Ransom Trilogy, uh, again, I was like, holy cow, this, I see so much more in this. This is incredible. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious. So you, so you read this, this book, you take a class on it. Did the class show you enough that there was a ton of depth to this? Or did you realize all of this depth mm. in your thesis? Like, so when you dive into your undergrad, you're, you're, you're thinking this might just be a fun, interesting thing. And then you dive into you're like, holy cow, there's way more here. Like, how did, how did it get to that much meat? Yeah, there's, I would say it's, it's kind of a combination. So it was funny. The class I read the book for initially, this, the space trilogy was a rhetoric class, actually. So it was not a Lewis huh. class. It wasn't a cosmology class or anything. It was a rhetoric class. And so, and there, we read pretty broadly um, with the mm -hmm. idea of we're just, we're learning rhetorical devices in all sorts of different styles. And Lewis is a master rhetorician really. And his style is yep. so, it's so winsome. And he, ha he really nails that balance of clearly he's a genius, but he never makes you feel like he's talking down to you or patronizing you. Uh, he he <laughs> yeah. knows when to tone down 
his language. He's always so personable. And so just that, that, I mean, he's a great person to learn rhetoric from and learn how to, how to be a good writer from. And so we, we read a little bit of Lewis, including the space trilogy for that class, but it wasn't actually a Lewis class. So it was really like the teacher kind of just teased with a few things that Mm -hmm. sparked enough of my imagination and my, and grabbed my attention to be just to realize like, there's a lot more here that's not being you know, delved into because we just don't have the time in this class to talk about it. And throughout the following years um, in my undergrad, I mean, Lewis was a constant theme. There were a lot of classes I took where we read some Lewis, or um, I did actually end up then taking a Lewis class where we read just a, a broad swath of what he had written. And so through all that, I'm, I'm constantly thinking, I was constantly thinking about looking forward to what I wanted to write my thesis on and, and thinking, I know I want to do it on Lewis. I know I want to do it on uh, the Ransom Trilogy. And then I read Dr. Michael Ward's Planet Narnia, which just, that was it. Like that. Are you a full believer? I Oh, I am full. Yeah, full <laughs> believer. Yeah, he he convinced me completely. And, and honestly, I think it's one of those things that the more I read Lewis, the more I study, the more convinced I become. Uh, so- oh. So I just, I haven't really seen anything that made me go, wait a second. I don't, I don't know about that. So I, yeah, I'm full on board with that. And it was just such an excellent, excellent book. And then I I actually met Dr. Ward um, after that and was able to chat with him about it. And so it just, that really was like, okay, I've made the connection now. Like I, medieval cosmology is kind of this linchpin um, cause I think it's really cool. Lewis clearly thought it was really cool. And so, you know, how can I put all this together? And so it was a combination of just learning a lot of things from various teachers and authors and Lewis scholars. And then my own reading of just Lewis himself, I read as much as I could get my hands on that he had to say about it. The discarded image is a key, mm. uh, key text there as well. And so I definitely unearthed a lot of things in my own research um, as I worked on various various projects. But uh, so it's kind of, kind of a combination of, yeah, learning from others and then also making my own discoveries as I went along. That's incredible. And so then I'm guessing I know the answer to this, but so you, you finished all this, you have this incredible research. Was it pretty clear you're going to turn this into a book then at that point because you've had all of this already written? Well, so yeah, that that's a fun question too. It was it was during the course of my undergrad research and writing that that I had the idea to write a reader guide of some sort. Hmm. In part because during during my research, to be honest at the time and this was this was in 2000 between 2014 and 15 that I was working on my undergrad thesis. And at the time it, it felt like there wasn't a whole lot out there on the ransom trilogy, because honestly there wasn't, there were a few key texts, mm-hmm. um, Dr. Downing's book, and then a couple others, but, and there, but there wasn't, and there was plant Narnia, which was great, but he was focused on Narnia and there's some really great sections in there about the ransom trilogy, but it wasn't uh, the main focus. And so in the course of my research, I'm like, oh, there's, I, I wish there was more for one thing. And then I would also get questions from you know, friends back home or from a lot of um, my, I know a lot of homeschooling moms being you know, from the homeschooling world. <laughs> and the quest, constant question was, why would you write on those books? They're so weird. <laughs> Like, they're so weird. Like that was the recurring theme. You're like, that's exactly why. Right, that's exactly why. I found myself over and over again wanting to point them to a really good resource. Like say, here, go mm-hmm. read, 
go read this guide and it'll tell you like why I think these books are so important and what's so cool about them. And I didn't really have a good one to point them to. I mean, again, there's good books out there, but also talking about a certain, a certain audience, right. That I, I wanted to speak to. And I didn't really find the right things. Like I wanted something that was accessible um, and yet opened up a lot of doors into other, other areas that they may have not known about before. So uh, so when it came time to decide on what to do for a master's thesis, I thought, well, there wasn't a guide that really was what I wanted to have. So maybe I should just take the research I've been doing and expand it and and write one myself. What a what a what a Lewis type comment. <laughs> We're gonna make the books we don't we we that aren't there. <laughs> I yeah, love it. I mean, it kind of was like, well, what what would Lewis do? There you go. Just ask the question. What would he do? Well, we'll just write the book. Might as well. I already had a large amount of research done. And so it was just a matter of, you know, continuing to gather more and organ- deciding how I want to organize the book. And that was probably the hardest part, honestly, is, mm. is when to stop because it's not a comprehensive guide. I don't think that's possible because there's so much uh, richness to be had there. It's like you start mining in one area and before you know it, you've fallen into another vast cavern and you're just like, mm. now what do mm. I do with this? So I think um, trimming and editing and kind of controlling my impulse to just go full steam into every <laughs> little rabbit trail was the hardest part of the project because there is still, there's still so much there to discover. And so I think consciously seeing myself as a guide rather than the answer to every question, it was really important. You know, I'm pointing, pointing you in the direction, the right direction, hopefully getting you started. And I, my hope is that there will be lots more written on this trilogy mm-hmm. throughout the next decade as people, you know, pick up this book and say, oh, this is so cool. I bet there's more. And, and the answer is <laughs> yes, there is more. So go write more books <laughs> on, on the Ransom Trilogy because they need to be written. There are more books to be written. Well, and, and you did a fantastic job making it very accessible like not feeling like it's a intimidating massive academic textbook in the situs. it's like mm-hmm. you can read these chapters that um, are packed with a, a a condensed concise amount of very important information on a topic and and really flow through it in a in a manner where you're just picking up on all these things chapter by chapter that aren't like 50 page chapters and i really enjoyed that because you don't, you almost don't want the book that you're reading about the book to be way, 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 way longer. It's like, it's, it's nice when it's, it's, it's similar there. And so I really appreciated yeah. it. Now I'm not sure I'm the standard to be saying whether that's great or not, well, but <laughs> that's, that's good to hear though. That, um, that, and yeah, there's a balance that's hard to hit. And obviously I think Lewis is the best example. And so he is my inspiration and I don't think anyone does it quite as well as, as he does, but that, that was the goal is to not, not dumb it down so much that it seems simplistic Right. Because it isn't, yep. you know, there is a lot there. It's definitely not. But to also make it enjoyable, enjoyable to read and, and easy for for my target audience, which is primarily, you know, myself when I was 14, <laughs> you know, in a way or homeschooling moms or, or teachers who want a good resource that's easy to hand off to students, um, that sort that sort of thing. So that's really good to hear. Yeah, you nailed it. So let's let's dive into a few of the key points of the out of the silent planet section. Now for listeners, it goes further than that. And so it's for the entire ransom trilogy. So we are going to be focusing on the out of the silent planet part, but realize that this 
book will be a guide for all of it. Uh, there is much more than what we're going to be talking about here. So let's start. So the science fiction side of it. So the Ransom Trilogy is a science fiction book, and you have a, a section there discussing the influence of of science fiction in the genre on Lewis in uh, why he was drawn to it as a method or a medium maybe um, for communicating. So can you talk a little bit about the science fiction? What what was it about Lewis that why did he choose to do this genre? Why did he like it? Um, how was he influenced by it? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. And I was thinking about it a little bit because I realized that, you know, I actually don't talk too much about the science fiction side of things in, in my book because for one thing, I will be the first to admit that that's not necessarily my area of expertise, right? <laughs> uh, I'm not necessarily a science fiction guru or anything by any means. Also, I think Lewis himself, he he really was fascinated by the genre because it was fairly new in his time. And at the time, he, he called it scientifiction, I think. Scientifiction is the t- term <laughs> that he uses for it. And it's fascinating. There's a really great essay that he wrote on, it's called On Scientifiction, and you can find it in various essay collections. Um, the one I have, I think it's in a collection called Of Other Worlds. And that is a really interesting essay because he talks about all the different kinds of scientifiction and how some of them are basically just other genres that use advances in technology as just a kind of a cool add-on and then call themselves science fiction. Like, you know, it's not really science fiction in the sense that um, the science fiction part of it is just incidental, really. It's, it's, mm-hmm. and it, it's, you're telling really, a, you're telling a romance or you're telling a Western really in form, but you're just using the trappings of, of advanced science or a futuristic setting in order to make it feel like, feel sciencey, I guess, is, is uh, uh-huh. to use a, uh, a very technical term there. Um, but so I think, you know, so he, that is a really excellent essay to see what Lewis thought about these different genres. And he thought the, the genre that where you can use science fiction in order to communicate certain ideas in a way that um, is fresh and new and will put things in a different perspective. I think that's the one that really caught his attention, which I think we see very clearly in Out of the Silent Planet. And I might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but some of the conversations that are had between Ransom and some of the inhabitants of Mars uh, as another species that's not human are really fascinating. The conversations are, I think, some of the strongest parts of those books. And if you had that same conversation and you had it being had between two humans in a pub, two men in a pub, it would be a very different conversation. And I think we'd come to it with all of our own preconceived notions and it wouldn't communicate quite as effectively as when you suddenly put the conversation on Mars and it's not two men, it's one man and, a, and another creature, a sentient creature that has a completely different alien, I don't use the, that word on accident, alien <laughs> worldview, right? An alien concept. And and so it just, it suddenly you can have these conversations that really put things in a totally new light that you would never have have thought of before. And so I think that's the one thing that, that Lewis really, really likes. He, he knew himself. He's like, I'm not qualified to speak to the science side of things, you know, which is why in the second book, he has the angels take ransom to Mars instead of using a spaceship because he's like, because by that point, our own science and technology had gotten, had advanced so far that he's like, now people are going to start picking apart my 
my science and I don't want them distracted <laughs> by the science of it. So that's why I think his, the Ransom trilogy though, really doesn't fit cleanly into a science fiction category. So I almost am hesitant to even call it science fiction because it definitely has some of the trappings, but it's, it's more, again, more medieval in essence. It's almost like a medieval fairy tale with science fiction elements. Like what, what even is that? I don't know. He created his own genre, his own genre and no one has ever written in it since really. I don't think. Classic Lewis. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that segues perfectly because I'd love to dive in a little bit to the medieval idea because you had mentioned science fiction it can be a medium for communicating worldviews and ideas. And that is a really powerful part about this series and this trilogy. And a big part of the worldview philosophy he is attempting to communicate as a counter to a different one is the medieval conception of the universe. And so I'd love just to hear you know, we, we've already mentioned that term multiple times. I'm sure there's some listeners that are like, okay, what is this medieval conception of the cosmos? What is this idea? Can you help unpack that a little bit for us? Yes. Yeah, so there's definitely an element of it where it can be conflated with the Ptolemaic conception of the, of the cosmos. So the pre-Copernican revolution, you know, we, so we have mm-hmm. the, we have the earth at the center versus the sun, you know, versus a solar centric system. So there, there is that element, but I'd say that's, uh, that's one element among many. Um, that would be too simplistic. So there's the structural or architectural arrangement is important, not just because of the architecture being different, but because of the repercussions that that architecture has on medieval man's actual view of what that, what that means. Like, what does that architecture have to do with us, right? How does it affect our position or our place in the cosmos? And so the one thing, I think there's a couple things that are really key elements of the medieval cosmology. And the one, one would be the personality of the medieval cosmology and that come, all the planets come into play in that element that the cosmos is not just impersonal matter, but that it actually has a personality because it's been created by a personal God. And that personality is evident in everything, not just in mankind himself. And so I think that that really is a key element that Lewis particularly likes and plays with, especially when you, when you see Ransom going to the different planets and how does that personality affect the atmosphere and just the feeling of those locations and the inhabitants of the planets and his experiences there and what effect does that have on him, again, as a person, right? That, that he as a person actually changes and grows as a result of the personality of the places that he goes. So I think that that's really key um, element. And then the other element would be man's position in the cosmos. Because it's a mm-hmm. common misconception is that because the medieval man thought that mankind, the earth, was at the center that therefore they thought man was the most important because to us, our modern in our modern minds, we think, well, surely the center is the most important spot, right? We even use that phrase like, oh, you think you're the center of the universe. You know, you think you're yeah. the most important. We, everything revolves around you, right? We use those terms all the time without thinking about what they mean. And unlike them thinking of the earth as being the center as in like, oh, everything's just focused on earth and mankind. They actually saw the universe almost more like if you imagine a cone, an ice cream cone shape or a 
you might think a well or something like that. And the center isn't just the center, it's also the lowest point. And the farthest away, and you think, what, what's outside? What's the farthest away? Well, it's the Kailum Ipsum, or the very heaven, right? The heavens themselves. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, the abode of God outside that, right? It's like God is out there. And if man is the center, well, that's the farthest away from God that you can get, right? <laughs> um, which is not where you want to be yeah. um, in, in, their, in their view. And then- Sounds more like hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then where is hell? Hell is at the very center of earth. If you think of Dante's Divine Comedy, it's at the very center. And at the very center of hell is Satan himself, right? And he's very, he's, he's um, encased in ice at the very center of hell with, and he's like chewing on Judas Iscariot, I think, or something like that. And if I remember correctly, um, in Dante's, Dante's Divine Comedy, his Inferno. And so you think, okay, well, if the center is the most important, well, then by that reasoning, Satan is the most important being in the universe, which we know is incorrect and which the medievals did not think in the slightest. So rather than it being central and most important, it's actually central, lowest, and farthest away from God. It's the most humble position in the entire cosmos that you can have. And that is what uh, medieval man saw mankind's position as being. We are the farthest removed from God. We have fallen due to our sin and error. And so we are completely removed from God. And Lewis thought that actually the problem with the medieval cosmology wasn't that they had too high a view of man, it was that they had too low a view of man. And they actually struggled to reconcile that low view of man with the incarnation. Mm. Because then we have Christ becoming man, and he's not just becoming man, he's becoming the lowest form of being he possibly can and the farthest removed from uh, from God himself. And so he saw that as actually kind of creating a tension within the medieval cosmology, which is kind of contrary to what we often think when we think of man being the center of the universe. So I think that that's a really important, probably one of the most important elements. And I think Lewis thought so too, because he talks about that frequently in the discarded image. And I think he sought to rectify a little bit of that tension in the way he treats the medieval cosmology throughout the trilogy. That was super helpful and clear explanations. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm curious. So uh, a listener on the other side of this, we, we, we hear this. And if we have this understanding, we see this in the Ransom trilogy, what is the goal of that, of him communicating that to like change our lives and like everyday life? So what do I take with that knowledge and transform how I interact with creation with people and stuff. I'd be curious how that translates to that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting actually because at the at the end of the discard image, I think it might be the last chapter. He spent the whole book talking about singing the praises of the medieval cosmology, basically, and explaining it hmm. and how how amazing it is. And in the last chapter, he says there's really just one problem with it. It's not true. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, it's not true. And so so you're like, okay, what am I going to do with that now? And then what's interesting to me with that on the one side is that then in, in the Ransom trilogy, he actually is doing this interesting thing of, of marrying many of the elements of the medieval cosmology with our modern Copernican arrangement of the universe. So um, there's a scene in Out of the Silent Planet uh, near the end when Ransom, the character, comes across one of the 
well, one of the aliens, basically, one of the, the beings who's carving out a map of the cosmos. He's carving out a map. And if you pay close attention, you realize that the sun is at the center. So it's, it's a solar system. He's doing, he's mapping it out the way that we have learned it actually does work, right? Um, he's not pretending, he's not using the medieval cosmology and pretending, okay, let's all just like close our eyes and pretend the Copernican revolution never happened. Like, let's pretend <laughs> that the earth really is the center. He's not asking us to do that. He's pulling these elements from the medieval cosmology and kind of superimposing them onto our solar system. And I think in order to capture that very thing, which is elements that we need to recover because they are true and we've lost them with the advent of, of a lot of scientific advancement. And that is, it is a personal world. It is a personal creation because it was created by a personal God. And so we aren't just matter in motion. And when we look up at the night sky, we should look up at the heavens, not just a vast expanse of nothingness punctuated by, you know, little bursts of flaming gas balls, right? Um, so so he wants us to, to recover sort of an emotional relationship with the created world that is based on the truth as we know it to be, as revealed to us in scripture, and return to that vision, the more biblical vision of seeing the heavens declaring the glory of God, rather than listening to a lot of the evolutionary or materialistic reductionism that's going on mm -hmm. in our culture, which is that really there's, there's nothing up there. It's just empty, which we, of course, as the more, more we learn and discover, you just have to look at some of the, the pictures that have been taken to, to of the you know, deep space to realize it's not just empty and void <laughs> out there. It's pretty incredible, but he says that pretty, um, Lewis says that pretty explicitly at the end of Out of the Silent Planet in the postscript, that if he has affected even a small percentage of his readers with the idea of the heavens as opposed to space, then he'll consider his efforts successful. And that does that does affect how we how we live our lives and how we go about our day-to-day -day business. If we realize that everything has a purpose and everything is created and personal then that affects how we move through our lives every day. And just even the small things that there's nothing unimportant uh, or that doesn't have a place or that isn't serving a purpose. Well, and I love that that's, I never know when I ask these questions, how a person's going to answer them. So <laughs> I love that you answered it that way because that was, despite not understanding the very first time I read this book years ago, the medieval cosmos, the Dante stuff, all of, all of the influence that went into it. That was something I really got out of it was the the beautiful, intimate, personal, emotional connection with creation. And you saw that with the creatures on the planet itself and how there was just a lot more respect. They were one with it. There was they they understood that this was a created thing and they're creatures and there's a role and a relationship back and forth. And it was not just transactional per se. That very much stuck out to me and felt very different than how we interact with the world today. And so despite not, Lewis was very successful, I guess, in, in really communicating that. And I found that incredibly beautiful. And so it, it, it really was shaping and transforming the way I think about, because I was actually thinking, man, there's so many things in creation I just kind of use, like it's here for me. Mm -hmm. And that's not, not quite true. You know, we have a relationship with it. Um, and so I love that part about this book. 
Yeah, and that it it has a relationship to God that's outside of us too, yes. which I think Lewis captures really well. I, I think there's a scene in oh, I think it's the Great Divorce. Great Divorce. I love the Great Divorce with the the waterfall, right? That I think it's I think is there where that he he hears voices right from the waterfall yep. and realizes, and it's this great prayer. And there's just this element of that the water itself or the, the creation itself can experience joy in just doing what it's been created to do. And, and I think that connects too with the, with the great dance that you opened talking about, right. The, that we're all designed to move in harmony with the great mover and God is the great mover. And mm. we do that by doing what we've been created to do. And so in some ways, you know, there's there, the na nature and the beasts of the field, right. That, that they are almost more in tune with that obedience than we are. <laughs> and because they are just doing what they've been created to do. And there's a joy to be found in that. So the fact that creation doesn't just exist to serve us, but it's also serving a purpose outside of that is really, I think, I don't know, it opens your eyes and it really does help you to see things in a different, in a different light. So that, that's, I think Lewis just nails that. And he does that in a lot of books. It, it's a theme that comes up again and again, and he does a, a very good job of capturing what that looks like. I think, especially in his fiction, it's just, um, yes. it, it's very memorable. It sticks in your mind, these images that he creates. Yes. You're very good at uh, making this worldview incredibly beautiful and attractive. I'm literally listening to this and I'm like, man, I'm a Christian, but I need to do a better job like <laughs> realizing the beauty of what we're a part of. You know, you can somehow, you can you can forget it sometimes mm -hmm. and what a gift it is to be a part of this creation. So I'm curious here. This is now a personal thing I'm genuinely, uh, that I don't know the answer to yet, but the the conversation he has on pleasure helped me understand this, particularly before I've got to probably talk about it in a few weeks when we record that <laughs> episode. I loved that he brought that in here. It felt like a little bit like, okay, he really wanted to communicate something here. And it wasn't that it was forced in there at all, but it just stuck out as like, okay, this is an important conversation. He's trying to communicate this idea that our fallen world has one concept of pleasure. Here's like a non-fallen world's concept of pleasure. You know, do you think it was just a natural byproduct and it just kind of flowed in there? Or do you think Lewis goes, you know, I really want to take this chance to communicate this? Like, mm -hmm. first of all, what are your thoughts from that perspective before we dive into what you what he was communicating with this? So I definitely think he was doing it on purpose because this is a, yeah. a favorite theme of his. He talks about it mm -hmm. multiple times. It comes up again in Paralandra, which makes sense with Paralandra being Venus, right? I mean, she's the mm. goddess of pleasure. Yep. I mean, it makes <laughs> sense that there's there's that theme in that book more strongly. And then, but there's also other essays that he's written on this topic as well. I think there's there's a really great essay called Transposition. I, I <laughs> think I quote from it, if I remember correctly, I quote from that essay in that chapter uh, because he talks about um, this idea and such a good essay. I highly recommend it. But I think I love that conversation. It's one of my favorites, especially that he has with the, with the um, Harasa there on, on Mars about the idea of pleasure, because the way it's communicated is so, it's so foreign to us, but it kind of works for him to communicate it that way because it's a foreign being that's communicating mm -hmm. it. Um, but the idea of pleasure as almost thinking of it as a plant 
um, in all of the different stages and that this, the plant throughout the life of the plant, the whole thing is pleasure. It's not just one moment in the life of the plant. And so from, you know, from the beginning, from it blooming to being full bloom to the harvest, to the death of the plant, like that whole thing is, is different kinds of pleasure and also the pleasure to be had in the memory of pleasure. So the connection between memory and enjoyment at the time is really important to Lewis as well. And I think it's even honestly more, even more pertinent now than it was when Lewis wrote it, because it's so easy for us. We live in such a consumerist, you know, just age, right? We're always, always consuming and so easy now, especially with the technology, with um, the internet and just everything, right? It's like- It's all on demand. You get the the show you want, the food you want. <laughs> yeah, all on demand and you can have it again. <laughs> yeah, you can have it again and again. It's like, oh, we can just binge binge the whole show tonight and then do it again tomorrow night because it's there, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so there is, and, and in a lot of ways, I mean, it does cheapen that pleasure, right? There's, there's a yeah. sense in which we're just- Taking it, just taking it in thoughtlessly in a lot of ways. And so there, there being this element of deeper pleasure to be had from savoring and enjoying something, but then the pleasure from remembering that thing as well, once it's gone, that's, that's a whole pleasure in and of itself. It's kind of like going on the best vacation ever, right? You visit these amazing places and that experience itself is enjoyable and pleasurable, but then you go home and, and you get to remember it, you get to write about it, or you get to show your family pictures. And all of that is its own, its own pleasure and its own enjoyment. And what that is. And I think, I think um, this is almost a paraphrase too. like, what does that pleasure grow in you and build in you and do in you? Cause it has an effect also and that is yet another pleasure. So there's just layers, layers of it. And that there's something more to pleasure than just taking something in, hmm. right? That there's, there's something more going on there. And so obviously this is too, I think Lewis is talking about a goal and, you know, this, these are things to strive for think and think hmm. more carefully about, uh, because I don't think he would say that there's anything wrong with, you know, enjoying your hamburger and <laughs> then having another hamburger tomorrow, maybe like, you know, it's like, I've had cookies back to back nights. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, Oh, we have to eat again tomorrow. I mean, that's just the way it is. And should we, should we not enjoy that? I'm sure he would say we would, um, but there being different genuses of pleasure, right? There's different kinds, there's different qualities. And that we know that too, that we are made for far more than we experience now. And that uh, I, I can't remember what book it's in, but there's a wonderful quote from him where he says, it might be mere Christianity, that we are far too easily pleased, um, that we just, hmm. we kind of just Again, take things in yeah, the mud, the mud cakes, I think. Mud pies or something. Right, mud yeah. pies. Yes. Right. We just we just are dabbling around in the mud when when we have been made for so much more beyond what we can mm. even imagine. Mm. And that there are ways that we can move towards a greater capability of enjoying those things now if we yeah, if we look in the right spot and we think about it the right way. I also loved in that section the subtle point that was communicated, I guess, as I look at my notes, I don't know if it was you communicated it or if it was Lewis that did in here, but I have written down because it did stick out to me. The real, when he, when they were talking about monogamy, the realization that, uh, 
scientific advancements, which Earth would have had more than, or the silent planet would have had more than Melichandra, did not mean more morality. Like Lewis was very, because that is a worldview that sometimes people think that as we continue to progress, we become more scientifically advanced, more technologically advanced, knowledgeable. Thus, we must be becoming more sophisticated in our morality and stuff. And that's not, those two do not go hand in hand. Um, in fact, they could almost be arguably inverse. Yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. But yeah, and I, I really, I, I it's just a, a subtle point that jumped out to me, but I appreciated that because that is, that's a point that today I think a lot of people believe we're more moral today than we were 50 years ago and more than a hundred years ago. And that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Yeah. Knowledge, more knowledge doesn't always equal more morality, right? Just, and then that's, and that's a a whole nother, you know, philosophy that's kind of erroneous, (laughs) right? The, that, oh, the problem with our immorality is just that we need to be more educated, right? That's kind of the enlightenment, a little bit more of an enlightenment sort of view, right? Is that the problem isn't that we're sinful (laughs) and that we're fallen. The problem is that we just don't know any better, right? And if we knew better, Uh then we would, would then, uh, be better. But that's, yeah, like you said, very clearly not the case. <laughs> yes. So final thing um, before wrapping it up is, and now that I know that you met Dr. Ward and you uh, love Planet Narnia, help us a little bit understand the influence of Mars. And you had a little bit of a section on that as well and um, what it means to be under the influence of Mars, the importance of that theme for out of the silent planet particularly. Yeah, I think so. Lewis does this excellently. And the more you pull on that thread, the more you can find. So I think the martial influence is there not in a lot of ways in both the the way he describes the planet itself. um, And then and then all even the plot, even the plot is somewhat Marshall, and then I think especially Ransom's character and what happens to him as he is there. So Mars is obviously most familiar with knowing his him as the god of war, right? So there is this sort of warlike mentality that goes hand in hand with Mars, and you know for us it, the other element too here is that there's the translunar virtue and the sublunar virtue. So the the lunar hmm. Um, boundary, which is the boundary of the moon in medieval cosmology was seen as the boundary between the fallen realm and the unfallen realm. So everything Hmm. beneath the moon has been affected by sin and the fall and is subject to decay and and being warped and misused. And everything past the moon is still unfallen and not sinful in and of itself. Uh, So that's the other element is, you know, this, b- below the moon, the martial personality can be twisted and warped and can be cruel or used badly and uh, violently. Whereas tra- the translunar virtue is um, pure and unfallen. So it's this kind of warlike mentality, but that's not violent or cruel, which is like, how can we can't really even understand it. But you see it a little bit in the scene with the, um, the Harasa are, are um, hunting the Hnakra, right? It was like kind of like a shark-like creature. and Yes, I describe it as a shark. <laughs> yeah, it really is like a shark. And so, and there's this, I don't know, this, this joyful, cheerful spirit to it and no fear. Like they aren't afraid. They're just throwing themselves into this, this hunt, this fight, and with this joy that's overlaid on top of it. 
And this is a really key point for Ransom too, when he feels this kinship with the, with the Harasa that he hasn't felt up to that point. And it's, uh, it's really fascinating how Lewis can just capture that so well in that little scene. And Ransom is, he even says near the beginning, he's not really a very um, brave or particularly warlike man, (laughs) right? At all. He's (laughs) not at all, you know, willing to necessarily really willing to fight or do anything to defend himself. And so, even when he first just discovers, realizes, oh, I could actually use my knife to defend myself. It's like, that's a foreign thought to him. Like, oh, I, that didn't even occur to me that I could, you know, try to protect myself from these men that have kidnapped me. And so he's very much not a martial figure at all, right? He isn't, he's not, mm-hmm. that's not his natural personality or disposition. And throughout the book, you see that starting to change. He, he does harden, but not in a callous way. Um, in a just he's he's toughening up <laughs> to be uh, more right more casual there. He's just he's growing a tough skin. He's learning the the ways of war without the cruelty of war. And that also uh, not to give too much away, but it comes into play even more. I'd say in in the second book, hmm. um, in Paralandra, is when his his martial role kind of comes to a head, and he even says um, in again really jumping ahead in that he has strength. He says that he learned war in Venus. He learned war. It's like, it's like, well, why did he learn war in, on Venus and not on Mars? Well, the, the journey started on Mars. Like that's where the seed was planted. And then it, and then it comes to fruition in the second book, but I won't give away why or how, because spoilers. <laughs> that's, you know, that's a perfect way to wrap up the conversation too, because we teased a little bit the future yeah. books as well. So I like that. Thank you for coming on. Uh, but before we fully wrap this up, can you tell our listeners where they could go to find out more about you, places they could pick up the copy of the book? We'll, we'll link probably something to Amazon, but um, <laughs> if there's other places too as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do have a page on Facebook. It's Christiana Hale author on Facebook as well as Instagram. I am not particularly, I'm still learning at being good at, <laughs> at being active on social media, but I'm probably a little bit more. I'm terrible at it. Oh, it's, it's bad. I just, it's, I get busy. And then before I know it, you're like, oh, it's been three months. <laughs> so I do try to, I do try to update those with big, big things or, or, um, you know, any new interviews or new news. So, um, those are both places you can find my page, both Christiana Hale author. And then, like you said, the book is on Amazon or deeperheaven.com is a place you can order it. You got the deeper heaven. Well done. Deeper heaven. Yeah. Deeper yeah. Heaven. That's a, you got the domain. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, and then I realized that, um, it is now available in hardcover too. And I, I have a copy and it, it's actually quite nice. So that's fun. It's also available on Kindle and Audible as well, um, which is is great. So I haven't actually listened to the whole Audible version yet, but I've listened to snippets. <laughs> I got both the um, not hardcover, but the paperback and the Audible. Okay, I find it helps when I prep for interviews to have them both, and and allows me when I'm going back and forth to work to listen to it as I'm in preparation. You never know how busy you are and stuff. And so I really enjoyed the Audible book a lot. Actually, it was great. Yeah, I don't envy the reader because there's there's some tough names and and foreign <laughs> languages that go on in there. So I've always wondered what that process is like. Who how who who selects it and how it gets there? But it was very enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. 
I got some emails from the reader asking how to pronounce some old solar. And I said, well, your guess is as good as mine because Lewis didn't really give us a pronunciation guide. So we're going with our, with just our gut here. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, beautiful. Well, before to sign off, I'd like to thank our listeners, our Patreon supporters, our top tier ones, Matt, Jake, James, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. That list is getting longer and longer. And we pray for all of our listeners in all the prayer requests in our Slack channel that we get every single Tuesday. If you enjoyed this episode, go check us out on social media. And please join us next time when we'll continue going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.